Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 29th of May 2017. I'm Joe and with me are Jesse. Good afternoon. Phelan. Good evening. And Ike. Good morning. <laughs> That's all those bases covered then. Right, well, we've got a lot of news to cover and an interview coming up later. So let's get straight into the news and talk about Nextcloud Global Scale, as it says in the doc. Nextcloud 12, you missed that bit, Joe. Oh, yes, the crucial part. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like this release is aimed a lot more at um, enterprise. And they're saying that currently, if you try and deploy Nextcloud, you can get up to sort of the tens of thousands of users. Um, but you get to a point where you can't really expand it much more than that there there are bottlenecks here and there so this is a new sort of way that they've rewritten the the base so that you can make it more as as they develop it you'll be able to get to the millions of users uh, and so it's obviously aimed at these big enterprises whether they be schools and universities or um other sort of big business or whatever you it'll definitely help the 10 odd people that use mine but uh yeah i, I welcome it anyway yeah, so it's made up of load balancer and a login server, which then detects where you're logging in from and sends you off to the various nodes. So it sounds like quite a good idea. But as I always say about Nextcloud, it it just doesn't feel that ready. Now, Phelim, you use it regularly. Yeah. Is it really any good? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is it reliable? Does it sync properly? Does it do the core stuff properly? Yeah, I think it does. Um they did take some of those components out so they could make the base uh, more updatable for them and they made them all apps. I don't know whether that was a great idea because I think calendaring um, and contacts was always going to be part of it, but they are kind of blessed apps as well. So I don't know. I've never had any trouble with it. I, I Maybe people do have trouble with it, but I, I constantly use contacts, calendar, uh, I use the webmail on it if I if I need a webmail client, um, and I've had no trouble whatsoever with it. And I've had that server running, um, oh, God, no, almost since it existed. I think it was probably since at least version three or four, and that's the same server install. I mean, fair enough, it's been upgraded, etc. But um, it's the same same thing has been running. So I've had no trouble with it. Well, it's still running after they contacted your ISP to tell you to stop it. Well, I update my software as opposed to apparently <laughs> other people. So, Jesse, we talked about Nextcloud back on the Linux Luddites days. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was basically shit back then. Yeah, I think we, we thrashed around with it, trying to compare it directly with Drive. And the thing that the three of us back in the day used Drive largely for was for our collaborative show notes and during the show we could edit them or we could you know chuck things in and delete other people's and and we we all three went on to the collaborative editing and it kind of crashed after a while or someone's didn't refresh we all got kicked out at one point it, it, it just couldn't quite handle the massive load that three people typing letters uh, put on it but i see that on this they've got a new collaborative thing using is it calibra that's the ebook thing, isn't it? No, you're thinking of Calibre. Calibre is the office suite. That's what I'm getting confused with. It says, in this release, individual file shares can be made writable, enabling you to share a docx file through a public link and immediately collaborate uh, in a shared editing session with others with Calab Calabra, I'm going to say, online. Calabra, yeah, but that's the open source 
software house that does work with open office and, and sorry libre office whoops um oh yeah yeah this is ringing a bell to me now yeah so it's basically um collaborative libre office yeah so if they've moved over to that rather than their own in-house um collaboration then maybe you know it, you know these things obviously moved on and maybe it is more functional now ike you've been awfully quiet well a little question's been forming in my mind right oh dear <laughs> be afraid <laughs> So, me with a very, you know, busy life, <laughs> I was going places, what would, I, right, Phelan, you use Nextcloud, right? I do. Now, are you using this for company stuff or personal stuff? Both. Right. So, for your personal stuff, do you have this at home or some random server off in the cloud? Um, It's a, a server up in the cloud, yeah. It's an OVH server. Okay. Oh, yeah, fair play. So... Here's another little question for you. On the personal stuff, what would you actually use it for? It's going to sound a really stupid question, but me, I'm the sort of person who shoves stuff on a disk and forgets about it. You use uh, Google services, don't you? Um, I do when I don't. So, okay, so I have Google do. Drive, but I don't really like what it does. <laughs> no, you, either you do or you don't. So For some stuff, basically uploading yeah, okay, screenshots. Well, I mean, your contacts on your phone are in Google, right? No. Right, so you store them on the SIM then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you accidentally dropped that phone in a bog in uh, Westmead and you're reaching in to get that SIM card out because you know you need those phone numbers. Yep. <laughs> Lovely. Enjoy. <laughs> you actually have to have contacts to have contacts. Oh. <laughs> well. Okay, so, yeah, but you do use things like Google Plus and the like, right? So you use all those apps. I yeah. I don't use any of the Google stuff. I don't have even Google Apps installed. So for me, I, I have a phone that has no contacts, no storage, uh, no way to get photos off of there if I want to, unless I'm locally on the box. Um and I use it for all my calendaring. Um, I use it for my contacts. So I don't have anything stored in the phone. It's all, you know, it's all synced with OwnCloud or NextCloud. Oops. So you did it again. <laughs> it's hard to deprogram because it used to be. But I mean, yeah. So for me, I, I literally would not be able to do what I do with my phone if I didn't have it. Yeah, I could probably try to cobble a few things together. But it's, no, no, thanks. I don't have time for that. And outside of contacts and calendars and stuff, because admittedly that stuff is nice to have synced, I guess, between your desktop and because I know GNOME has good integration with that. I mean, would you store personal stuff on there, like photos? Yeah, to a certain extent, I would. Well, they've got a thing called the um, the automatic upload. I think it's got to catch your name, but I've forgotten what it is. But essentially, you can take a photo on the phone and it'll immediately upload it to a location on Nextcloud. Yeah, that's called cloud storage, Valen. Yes, fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's called Google Photos to me. Yeah, but it's on my server. So if I've taken okay. a picture of something, I could take a photo of Richard Stallman, and as long as I delete out those GPS coordinates, <laughs> I'm sure he'd be very happy that it wasn't getting sent up to Google Drive. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's fine if you want to sort of send your pictures, but and most of these things where you send your pictures, they're not your pictures anymore. There'll be the yeah. legal bump of, oh, yeah, well, everything you send up here is now ours. Ha, 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 until people complain about it. Yeah, you don't download the original again either. And that it, it's things like this which it never really used to bother me. But the whole – because I used to be one of those lads. But like, I've always considered myself very pragmatic. 
And, you know, like there's a necessary amount of evil that you can allow in your life. And I was like that for years, you know, things like even DVD playback and all this silly stuff, like uh, patent encumbered stuff, basically. But especially this year, I, I'm getting to a point where I I don't feel comfortable anymore relying on these services or having my information that's outside of my explicit control because it's not so much where it's stored, it's the lifetime and ownership of that data. And that's that's the thing that's starting to get me for a while now. I, I'm sort of rejecting monopolization. And I think I'm basically slowly turning into you. Haha. If you uh, give me your postal address after the show, I'll, I'll send you a welcome pack. And, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's got a badge. Post? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the reason I like OVH, because if mm. I wanted to, when my server comes to an end or blows up, I can send them, I think it's 70 euros, and they'll send out those drives to me. Now, mm. I don't know how many times I've been copied in between, who knows, but I mean, that's the practical side of it, you know, being slightly pragmatic, uh, you know, you have to put a server somewhere unless you're actually running it from your house. Yeah. How, how is this OVH service different to like uh, other other cloud hosted providers? Well, it's not really a cloud server, it's an actual box, so my, mine is a server. Yeah, these are dedicated machines. I use OVH too for the solar infrastructure, I've got two servers with them, and they're they're fantastic. All right, well, they're not paying us, so shut up about them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what about the video calling and stuff? Do we care about that? I do. Totally. Yeah. Because Skype has essentially died as a project. And as I don't like using it, but I have to use it for certain clients. And it used to be great to use screen share. Um, can't do that anymore. I haven't been able to do that for a long time. And uh, I'm going to be able to do that now in xCloud. I haven't upgraded to 12 yet, but I'm really, that is actually going to be very useful. Cause so for like client support, you can now actually remotely administer their machines. I don't know whether you can do that, but you can certainly demo somebody through a project and, you know, roll yeah, out. Yeah, have the voice call and actually see their screen and guide them. Yeah, that's that's invaluable. Like That's, yeah. Does it mean we can move away from Mumble then? Um... <laughs> Yeah, but Mumble's open source anyway. Yeah, it's its own thing. Like, yeah, horses for courses, etc. But I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of nice new features to the to the new user side of it, uh, and to the admin side on twelve. That's going to be great to be able to use, like a lot of the admin tools that they've got put in there. But um, I really, really looking forward to that screen share stuff because just just when you've got a project you want to show somebody here i've been doing this thing for you blah 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 walk you through the demo so you know that i've not been just sitting around <laughs> doing nothing for weeks <laughs> be great okay well i have a challenge for you for a future episode <laughs> oh god you're gonna help me on google my personal life oh jesus yeah okay no no yeah. i can't oh. do it for all stuff because i'm using google apps for business because i'm terrified to run a mail server that's a fair point. <laughs> but yes, yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, well, let's talk about the show Silicon Valley for a second. Um, and we're not going to talk about their seafood app, which is the Spotify for food, which turned out to be just good for um, filtering out dick pics. Let's talk about the other plot in that, which is a decentralized internet. Um, only not, this is actually real, Blockstack. A gateway to a new decentralized internet using blockchain by the looks of things. I read through this and just thought it sounded like vaporware and lost interest. But Phelim, you put this in, so defend it. <laughs> okay. 
give me too much credit for putting it in. I, I literally copy pasted in, read the white paper for a couple of pages and went, oh dear God, flashbacks to uni here. And uh, then I went <laughs> looking for a a quicker online guide to it. But uh, yeah, it, it does look good. It's, so it's uh, storage, uh, identity and payments through um, essentially Bitcoin. Or using yeah, blockchain Bitcoin infrastructure. Yeah, blockchain. Okay, fine. And um, it's something we need because I'm sick and tired of like de-siloing all my info every time a new thing comes out where fam- family or friends are on that like, you have to go, right, shite, and sign up for an account on that, right, and all that other stuff that before, do I leave it there? Do I kill off that account? You know, it, we need to get away from all these data warehouses. I like that. If you go to their install page, you've got Mac OS and Linux coming soon or <laughs> developer alpha. Yeah. It's early days to say the least, but it does sound interesting, but you've got that network effect problem, haven't you? That you need to have a lot of people using this for a lot of people to use it because it's otherwise just worthless. It's like you can create a mastodon instance or you can create mastodon generally and okay there's going to be a few thousand people using it but telegram's got a few million and whatsapp's got a few million more and so okay that's not necessarily comparing apples with apples there but even so great ideas like this in theory need that critical mass to actually work and and so what is going to make people do people really care about decentralization enough i fear not i think wait till twitter folds yeah also they might not have linux binaries issued but i've just dug through the github there is all right manual instructions for setting up uh, blockstack uh, portal on your system i i'm kind of interested um, I hate the fact that it's using Python and Node.js, and I want to shoot them in the face for that. But what should be written in C? No, there's nothing wrong with Python. I mean, there's there's Go, there's Rust. I mean, Node.js you can sort of allow off, but Python and Node. I mean, come on, this is web application stuff. But anyway, I'm still going to give it a go, even if it does say pseudo apt-get. <laughs> <laughs> what? No EO package? What's wrong with Bill? <gasps> How surprising. <laughs> this never <laughs> happens to me. <laughs> Sobs into his pillow. <laughs> All right. Well, that's obviously one to watch then. Uh, yet another failing story. Uh, some KDE bollocks that no one cares about. Look, we've been doing this stuff for ages. KDE's got it sorted. Everybody else is just catching up slowly. No, uh, KDE Simon. Uh, it's coming up to the dot five release so what it is it comes from simon says and it's a okay speech control of a computer i guess would be the term for it um computer move the mouse close to i mean i think it was originally designed for people who had a quadriplegia where they have no ability to control a mouse at all um so there's a great demo video i think we should link to um where the guy He's able to tell it to to open up a few files. He's able to open a browser. And then where you don't have easily accessible links, which automatically get uh, numerals beside them. So you can say, you know, pick 137 or whatever. Uh, You can actually split the screen into segments and then continually keep breaking it down into segments till you literally mouse click the thing that you want. And while that's pretty laborious to do, you know, if you've ever seen somebody with a... um, a mouth control for a computer or whatever. It's just, I mean, it's it's scary that 
you know, you can actually use a PC when you would imagine you can't use a PC. So um, I think it's pretty impressive. Um, and I just thought it was kind of an interesting side to all the Amazon nonsense and the, <coughs> Minecraft. Uh, <coughs> yeah. And, and buy me a Ferrari accidentally turning up at your door from Amazon. So I thought it was a, nice to see that there's an actual useful side to voice recognition. And you know what really jumped out at me during that demo video was that it had working alt tab. <sighs> really? I didn't actually see that. <laughs> Essentially, what was basically Alt Tab, which uh, how long have you had that working in Budgie, uh, Ike? Fuck Two off. weeks. <laughs> Simon says, gobshite. All right. <laughs> Simon says, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> but in all seriousness, right? I, I said this on Linux Action News yesterday. KDE, that project to me seems to be going from strength to strength. They seem to be innovating where other people are not. Look at what Gnome's doing just constantly shifting the goalposts of GTK, breaking things. Whereas KDE is, okay, I've never been a massive fan, but it's I'm, I'm warming to it. If you look at things like KDE Connect and this Simon thing, and the fact that since Plasma 5 came out, it's become more and more stable, more and more usable, more and more good. It, it just, that's how to do things, isn't it? Not the fucking bollocks that Gnome's doing and not being stuck in the past like XFCE is. And Ike is slowly convincing me to move away from XFCE because I'm basically going to have to because nothing's going to work in it before long. Oh, that's not exactly what I said. Well, that's pretty much what you said. It's <clears throat> You said to me that it was dead technology. And then I said, look, they're porting the panel to GTK3. And you said, okay, dying technology then. Because... <laughs> GTK 4 is out, so... <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that's the advantage KD has over the likes of GNOME, is the fact that you're not having to constantly engineer the plumbing to then stick the desktop on top of. No wonder they wanted to rip everything out in GNOME, because they're just so tired by the time they got around to finishing GTK 3 that they didn't want to actually build anything with it in the first place, just tear it all down. Well, I mean, even the core cute stuff has... Because I'm switching to Qt now. I'm allowed to say Qt, not Qt. Did you see that? Yeah, um, right. that. you won't catch but me. Definitely doing gnome. That, but definitely gnome. Not going for gnome, but go for Qt. Right? <laughs> like even the core APIs of it. Like it, it's got speech stuff built in. It's got networking stuff built in. It's got JSON stuff built in. And these things might sound fairly trivial, but for me, who's been trying so painfully, so painfully to defend GTK for years. Like, GTK is just a UI toolkit, right? But Qt is a platform, and that's a very big difference. There's a lot of stuff available, like, as bolt-ons on top of GTK, but it's kind of nice having it all there. And then you've got dozens upon dozens of libraries as well as part of the, like, the, the KF5 platform on top of Qt as well. And I think the common theme there, from what I'm seeing, is they're focusing more on the human interface, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's the big differentiator in terms of focus between the projects. They got a lot of grief back when they tried to split off from, you know, it became, what was it, KDSC? Um software compilation maybe? Yes, that's the one. And, you know, they got a lot of grief of, oh, this is stupid, it's KD or what is it? But I think that was actually a smart move back in the time because they worked on breaking down the libraries, 
making them not just for KDE, but also for, you know, if you've got a project, you can include a tiny bit. Now, everybody slags like off. Hey, oh, I want to do install one KDE app, and I took in 15 terabytes of data. <laughs> Fucking, that's such nonsense. If you do that with any package, you'll get some, but that's mainly down to packaging. It doesn't actually require all of those things together necessarily, and certainly not if you're from a coding standpoint. So I think I think they're doing well. Um, yeah, fingers crossed keeps on going that way so so jesse you were using kd for a bit but then you switched back why that's because i was using it on uh chaos and it so that's a, a from the ground up distribution and it used kd on the front end um and it wasn't that i moved away from kd it was because i moved away from using chaos kd wasn't uh didn't sort of draw me in enough for me to then load it on top of Arch when I moved back to using Arch. I and mean, the, the reason I left Chaos was that it was av- available software. So you had to, you know, you kept on coming up across software that you couldn't find. Whereas with, you know, Ubuntu or Arch or what have you, there's always the software that you want. And so I left it for that reason, not for KDE, but I do prefer GNOME. So it didn't have the emeralds you wanted? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Chaos Emeralds. <laughs> ah, okay, right. Sonic <laughs> joke. That was fucking obscure. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine that. A, a distribution built from the ground up that doesn't have all the software you want. That's crazy talk. Simon yeah. says. <laughs> <laughs> now, what Simon isn't saying is our next one. So a couple of years ago, uh, Debian moved from init5 over to using the in its system that everyone has moved to, uh, system D, and a bunch of greybeards decide to fork it. Um, Ike, can you rem- remind me what the name of the distribution is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> no, it starts with a D. D- <laughs> fuck off. Okay, so we've had quite a bit of IQ picking, but so Dev1 Divian? was made. Right. We'll go, we'll go with Dev1. And, uh, Just not Duvet. No. <laughs> and that has now reached uh, its 1.0. And so it's it's usable, it's out there. If you want to use a Debian base, but with a SysV in it, then there you go. Yeah, and the live image is XFCE, so that's a win as far as I'm concerned, at least for now. And I installed it alongside Debian and... There's not much difference. The installer's a bit clunkier. But apart from that, pretty much the same deal, only with a different init system that makes absolutely no difference to me personally. Ironic, the last time we talked about uh, System D, I said I hadn't got around to using it. Literally days later, had to get used to using it because I had to use it to write a script to start up uh, Logstash. And uh, yeah, now that I've done that, this project means nothing to me. What, is it easier then? It's fine. Yeah, it's it's the same. Yeah, to be honest, the less bash scripts that go on forever, doing all the same stuff again, the better. To be honest, so importing LSB common. Oh Jesus! Yeah, it's gonna make like a the the file format is basically the same as a .dot desktop file. Like yeah, once you have that down, four lines or even less probably it's yeah, it's system great d, i know there's a lot of hate against system d and i'm not necessarily a hater of system d i i hate its tendrils i do really despise its tendrils because if you're ever looking for a disjoint you just 
you know, like if you look at the reverse dependencies of it, yeah, actual bricks will be shat. But I'm kind of happy that, even though I'm going to continue using SystemD myself, I am very, very happy that not everybody's putting their eggs in the same basket. Because I think we do need a bit of variety. I think we do need people doing, be it cranky or alternative or whatever, doing things differently. Because you've even got like Void Linux is using Run It and uh, Gen 2 is using Open RC. Yeah. So if it, basically, if shit comes on top, you know, there is a way out. So I'm happy for that and that there is some sort of variety and it helps to keep things portable as well, which I think is highly important as opposed to being bound to a single solution. Well, hang on. That's what I was just about to pull you up on. The fact that, <laughs> look at GNOME. You can't use GNOME with Dev1 because of the dependency on System D. And if System D becomes all pervasive in the distros that people actually use rather than the Gen 2s of this world, mm. then surely you're going to get a situation where more desktop environments, more and more software as well, even on the server, depends on System D. And so it's not portable. You are stuck with System D, and it has completely taken over. Yes and no. I mean, some things do link directly against System D, like at the binary level. Um, they're using like the System D Dbus library, and that's one of the things that kind of pissed me off. Like I know it was a simpler library and whatever, but it's part of System D, and you're using that because you're doing it from C, and it's simpler to do Dbus. But then you're immediately tied to System D just because that library was easier to use. You know, I mean that's a little bit like horrid as far as I'm concerned. Like there's no polite way of putting that, right? You you went for the easiest option there. That's kind of what you get. Um, some things don't link directly to it, but they kind of expect systemd behavior. Like, you used to have console kit, but that's very, very dead by now. So you have things like eLoginD, which will provide a compatibility layer around that. But you're right, it's getting to the point now where it's unavoidable when things are using the libraries of systemd, which, yeah, you're, you're gonna have like a patchwork quilt at this rate. I mean, to be fair, even KDE kind of relies on it as well. Yeah, although I think the the FreeBSD version has actually kicked back to life, apparently. So with Ooh. them holding on, I think they might actually keep it a bit agnostic, maybe. Yeah, which is good, because if we have this variety and we have these people who, who aren't accepting it, then instead of being like embroiled in this monopoly later on down the road, where it's like, this is the one true path, it's forcing things to stay portable and agnostic and everyone benefits that way as opposed to being tied into this one solution which is a bit like vendor lock-in and that's basically what system d is at this point like i'm not saying for or against it but it basically is vendor lock-in whatever way you want to paint it and i use system d by the way and i know the comments they're going to crucify me <laughs> but it is and so is GNU. well just you wait until he gets his hands on the containerization stuff that he's planning Okay, so in, in that scenario, Ike, you're painting that we shouldn't put all of our eggs in this one basket. But then on the flip side, there are other discussions about like uh, when Ubuntu started Mir, why weren't they using Wayland? Wouldn't it be good if we all got behind Wayland, had one, you know, replace X with one thing? Where would you divide between we shouldn't all end up going down the system D path versus we should all back the video server? Okay, so. I mean, it's, it's a little bit twofold. I mean, one part of it is having these universal standards that are supported by everyone, and that's great. Like, that side of conformity is great. Then there's the 
competition aspect. If things aren't competing, things don't improve. They will gradually improve, but not out of necessity, right? Wayland at the time was very, very, very slow moving when Mir came about. Then Mir came about, started rustling a few feathers, and all of a sudden Wayland was kicked into high gear. Now, whether people want to admit that or not, the very existence of Mir kicked Wayland into high gear. So, you know, that was a good thing because there was competing, and at the end, Wayland got better. It doesn't matter if they used the same code or not, they was competing in the same space, so that was better. And while the conformity side is good because you have like this common base and let's ignore LSB because that's a fucking joke. LSB dictates that you need to have Q3 and Q4 and RPM. So those old standards, they just don't work, right? If we go too far down the conformity path instead of variety, it's again, it's a balancing act. If we go too far down that, then the core of every distro will look exactly the same. Now that might sound good, but you've lost the competition there. So you have this core part of it, which is the System D Linux OS. Now that sounds a lot like it's coming out of the mouth of somebody wearing a tinfoil hat, but that is the way that it will go down. And that, whatever way you want to look at it, is not a good thing. Unless somebody has an argument against that, of course. Well, then you end up with just all of the same distro with different wallpapers. Yep. Or on the server just one distro i suppose there'd be no different ways of doing the core of the os anymore because that core of the os as much as it'll be open source it will be this black box self-contained system around system d and everyone builds up on top of that and it's part of the way there already and that to me is deeply concerning because we need that variety we need that competition we need that portability it's in the lifeblood of linux and every linux distro out there it's at a point where, all right, we might laugh and joke and say that some distros need to die, blah, blah, blah. It's only a wallpaper respin. There's a lot of them out there that aren't. And taking over the core of the OS, like outside the domain of a single project and forcing everyone else into line, that's going to eventually kill a lot of distributions, valuable distributions. And I don't think that's good for anybody because it's going to kill diversity and it's going to kill innovation. Conformity at its purest form has never been good for anything. Well, I can just picture Paddy sitting there listening to this, silently agreeing with you. Okay, so... Uh, that's that's my concern. That's why my views are starting to change this year. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Um, this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entraware. And Entraware are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate, 16.04 and 17.04. And they've got a, a fair range of laptops and a couple of desktops and uh, even a server. Yes, you said that they ship uh, Ubuntu there, but actually they ship FreeNAS on this server, uh, the Nucleus, £700. You can get four drives in it, up to a maximum of four terabytes each. That's 16 terabytes. It's got an eight-core Atom chip, and you get up to 32 gig of RAM. So, you know, it goes all the way from your small to small to medium enterprise or home servers if you're really nerdy. Um, yeah, as you say... A bunch of laptops and, and some desktops as well so the full range yeah and i'm sitting here talking to you guys using one of them now the ether which is an absolutely beautiful machine with a nice 1080p display and 16 gigs of ram and a core i5 i didn't need a graphics card but if you do then they've got plenty of machines uh, with dedicated graphics so they've got everything from fairly low-end stuff that's ideal for just web browsing and email and that sort of stuff all the way through to 
powerhouses that you can do 3D art and video editing and machine learning and that kind of stuff. And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. So check out entroware.com. And if you do buy one of their machines, mention us at checkout so they know we sent you. So yeah, do check them out, entroware.com, for all your Linux computing needs. So a few weeks ago, I went to the London Linux meetup. And something I noticed there was effectively the reality of Linux in the real world. And that is that almost everybody there, apart from a few very nerdy, very quiet people who didn't really want to speak to me, used Linux on the server and either Windows or Mac OS on the desktop. And that was surprising to at least some of you, wasn't it? I'm thinking of you, Phelan. Yeah, I don't know what you would actually be missing. I mean, I genuinely ask that question because I, to me, I've used it completely since 2002, I think. So, and prior to that, it was like dual boot for four or five years, whatever. But um, yeah, I, actually, I wouldn't know what I'd be missing to be honest to do my job. So, well. Can I just put this to you, right? You are a professional sysadmin who deals with Linux all day. So it's not a huge surprise that you can get on with just Linux um, in your personal life and at work. Whereas, Jesse, you don't have a Windows machine. You don't own a Windows machine, do you? Um, the, your flatmate has one, but he's moving out soon. So you're going to be totally Windows-less. Yeah, I'm going to be fucked if I have to do anything with my, with my remote control. Yeah. But at work, there's not... A, it, it may be on the back end, possibly, but every client machine is Windows. Yeah, yeah, we use a, they're Linux machines, but they all log into a big fat Windows server somewhere, and I, you only see Linux as it's booting up, but then everything I do day to day is absolute Windows to the core. And yeah, I don't have anything at home that's Windows. You know, I'd, I'd reflect what Phelan said. I don't see what I would want to do more than what I can do. And so I don't need Windows. Even with Windows um, in the server, like you can remote into the boxes. I use KDE Remote Client to log into Windows Box if I need to, to do uh, admin work on a, say, Exchange server or something like that. So even from that side of things, the protocols are open so I can talk to it. I haven't encountered many a case where there's something that I can't do. Hokey VPN clients, maybe, where... You know, they're they're locked down to some particular client that you have to run, but when you get down to it, it turns out it's just IPsec or whatever. But I wonder whether, you know, you're you're sort of saying that um you don't see why people wouldn't switch to Linux because all the things that you need are here. Let's just let's just assume that whatever it is these people are doing, normal day to day computing, it's here and usable. But if they don't know that and to them, it's a big step into the unknown. And they know that on the server, it does X, Y, Z, and they're all very competent at running servers and big clusters or what have you. But they fear not having, you know, an app store. They fear not having uh, video editing or photo or whatever it might be. And obviously, they're in their comfort zone of, of having an Apple Mac or a Windows laptop, whatever. It's, it's the unknown. It's all very well now that we're here to say, isn't it lovely on this side of the fence? But you know, you're laughing at the people on the side. But if you're if you haven't made that transition of a desktop versus, you know, knowing what you do day to day on a server, then 
it, it can be quite daunting, I suspect. So I'm not that surprised that people who work on a server haven't made the same transition in their personal life to Linux on the desktop. Well, I met two kinds of people. I met the Mac people and the Windows people. Um, and so the Mac people, I think it's a case of once you have used a Mac, th there is no doubt that the hardware is good quality. The screens are lovely. The speakers tend to be really nice. Is that a past tense, though? Uh, well, that that is certainly up for debate, yes. But if you look at most Windows machines, they're basically garbage. Certainly the lower-end stuff, whereas there are no low-end Macs. They're all really nice in terms of hardware. So I think that that's probably why, if you get used to OS X and the whole Mac ecosystem and you've got an iPhone and stuff, you would end up, you've got Bash, you can SSH out of it into your server and that's all you need. I mean, that's you could do your job mostly failing with a Mac, couldn't you? If you threw gritted enough teeth. <laughs> I think I'd rather use a Windows machine, bizarrely enough. Really? Yeah, I think I would, actually. All yeah, right. Because I could install Sigwin in it, or I could run a virtual machine to manage it. I mean, I know I can do that on a Mac too, but if you're, you've got one hardware manufacturer and one software manufacturer, it doesn't take much to kill off something that you might be using. And yeah, but you see, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, like, if you right, forgot okay. about if, all if your principles, given, yeah, yeah. If, if, if I said to you, here's a MacBook, and now you've got to do your job, you could do it. You could yeah, import sure. all your keys, and you could SSH into the boxes that you need to do, right? So the thing is, so that's one side of the fence, and I think that the people who are used to Macs aren't going anywhere. And well, except for now that with the the refresh of the hardware and you know all the things that have been spoken about, loads only sixteen gigs of RAM, etc. But then you got the Windows people, and they tended to be people who work for big companies where their IT department won't allow them to have anything other than Windows because it's they're a Windows shop, as it were, and so they're using Sigwin and stuff. And interestingly, I didn't meet anyone there who had even heard of the subsystem, the Windows subsystem for Linux. Because I assumed that, okay, if you're not using Linux on the desktop and you're a Linux professional, then surely you're jumping at this new thing. I'd be amazed if any IT has Windows 10 yet, though. They're probably still on Windows 7 Enterprise. Yeah, I mean, I presume, are you on Windows 10, any of your machines, Jesse, at work? No, they're all 7. Mm, I suppose that speaks volumes, doesn't it? So, yeah, they are basically using Putty and Segwin and just stuck using Windows because they have to be, and they, they don't care enough because it, for them, it isn't this philosophy. I mean, I feel like to to be asked to put together a show like ours, you have to care about Linux and free software, whereas these people just use it like, I don't know, a, a carpenter uses a drill or something. It's just a tool for them, and then they go home and get on with their life. Yeah, but what sad fucks are doing that for their work with no interest in it, and then going to a meetup. Like, surely the point of the meetups, from ones that I've been to, I've taken my laptop when I've had a problem, you know, a few years ago when I was even more terrible at Linux than I am now. And so some guys helped me, and we got through what the problem was and how I could make it boot properly and what have you. And there was other people talking about, you know, installing Linux on phones. And it was, it was nerdy kind of Linux chat on desktop type stuff. Yet, if these people are... are knowing or know about linux through the server because that's what they have to do for work they must have enough interest to then take out their evening and go to the pub and talk more linux like either they are absolute nutters who live and breathe work <laughs> or 
they enjoy Linux. Or they're just there networking. Did, did you get that impression? Were there sort of business cards flying around and, you know, buy low, sell high? It wasn't quite that scene in American Psycho where they're all comparing business cards, but it was. <laughs> uh, there was certainly networking going on. Was it IP4 or 6? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ike, you've been very quiet as usual. No, I was just laughing in my head at that sad joke. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated it. <laughs> I mean, you work for Intel. That's not a secret. And they uh, are, you know, fairly um, cozy with Microsoft, I suppose you'd say. But they're also very committed to Linux. In your day-to-day life, you don't see any Windows, do you? Um. <laughs> ah, you do. Ah, <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. Shit. Um. <laughs> so I have what's affectionately known as my corporate laptop. <laughs> Um, that's the one that at the moment has Windows 8.1 on it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, to do any any form of work stuff, like, I got, and it's fairly standard for any company. You know, you VPN, you set up your proxy, standard stuff, right? So you can get onto email, et cetera, and so they can stop you going on torrent sites, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the usual sort of shit, right? And then I have the Windows laptop, which is basically, if you want to do anything at the business end ever, like, I don't know, meetings. <laughs> and that's kind of the main thing I have to have it for. So I'd have to open Outlook. I shit you not. <laughs> <laughs> like, open Outlook and set up a new Link meeting or Skype for Business, as it's now called. I'll always call it Link. And then you have the Link means. So for me, that's the only time it enters into my life. And I may be known, perhaps, for resenting that slightly. Sometimes you're kicking up a fuss, but it, it is what it is. And I don't have the alternative tools to do what I need to do, ironically enough. But so, they do let you do the development in Linux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that at a moment is running on a, a NUC that's running Solus, obviously. And I've got another, uh, do you know the Skull Canyon NUCs? That's my yeah, yeah. main clear Linux rig. Do all the stuff on there. Awesome stuff. But when it comes down to the business end of things, like literally business stuff, then, you know, I've got to go over to, the Windows laptop, because if I want to do something like use Link, there is Pigeon, which sort of has a plugin, which sort of works, but maybe doesn't, and is manual to set up, and then there's the enterprise stuff, and then the meeting stuff. You know, you need to interrupt with that, but it's not a good story from Linux. And I wish the stuff was better. I'm not the person to make that stuff, because I'm just not invested in it. So yeah, that enters my life, and I hate Windows 8.1. Like, I absolutely hate it with a passion. Because it doesn't happen in Windows 10, and they, they have rolled out that upgrade, by the way. It's, it is there. Like, you'll move the mouse, and then all of a sudden, I'll have a split tiling screen going on. Like, I've only just moved the cursor, so that's my punishment. Like, every Tuesday and Friday, I think. So even a professional Linux developer... A distro developer, distro founder, writer of a desktop environment. <laughs> yeah. Because you work for a big company, you're having to use Windows. Still got to use Windows. Well, that says it all, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a fact I'm not happy with, but it's a fact that I ensure I take on board. So you do get people sometimes saying, it's like, you know, you can just use it, you don't have to use these other things. And I would call them out and bullshit. Because if I've got to do it, then fucking hell, so is everybody. <laughs> it's simple as that. So at the, at the time when I can say for every last task that I know that you don't have to use those things, that's my ambition in my life. Completely cut it out. 
So to find alternatives to, to Pigeon, to make sure the enterprise stuff actually integrates so I can say goodbye to all that. I mean, to be fair, the, the, the bar is set pretty high because you're trying to integrate with a Windows network. And that there is kind of the problem. If you wasn't in, uh, a, I don't want to say a Windows company, a company using Windows infrastructure, then I think you already have a problem in that sense because you're asking a lot of Linux for it to do that. If you were starting a new company or if you was a smaller company, you could just choose not to have that infrastructure in the first place. Well, yeah, like Phelium is his own boss, has a very small company, and therefore you can choose what IT you use. Yeah, I mean, to, to clarify Handy. what I mean by that, I don't mean that Linux is in any way crippled and can't do these things. What I'm saying is interrupting with an existing Windows network is a big ask. Yeah, and that that is the reality, that if you're working for a big company, you do have to deal with Windows because Microsoft, for all their ills, they've got a bloody good sales team and they have become (laughs) ubiquitous through good sales, as far as I can see. I think the funny thing here is, though, that they've become very much a utility. Um, You know, it's to the point where they had to do the subsystem for Linux because those boxes were basically becoming a Windows terminal to log you on and maybe do your email and then everything else you did was uh in a, a vm or whatever um you know not for everybody obviously but for a lot of development work that's why they had to do it so maybe maybe it's hurting them quite a bit at this point though well windows itself i mean it you know they, they don't charge for it anymore because you're enabling software as a service that's what an os is about nowadays yeah but if you are forced into using windows 10 it's a pretty grim picture isn't it there's this twitter thread that's been going around this week this fellow who locked down windows 10 and it still was calling home at every possible opportunity it's it makes you wonder it makes you wonder how people put up with it yeah it's pretty bad it was (laughs) every every step of the way and you kind of think how can an enterprise actually even allow that to happen without essentially firewalling the boxes off the internet? But apparently something to do with Windows Update doesn't work then. Now, I don't know whether he was counting to having an update server internally or not. I don't know. But, you know, a lot of corporate uh, companies will have a, a big issue about what talks out as as much as what comes back in. I wonder if there's a point where there are going to be a lot of questions raised about it. Well, this could be part of the explanation as to why windows 7 persists yeah and maybe most companies aren't quite as sadistic as intel making you use windows 8.1 <laughs> ike has to stay silent in case he gets fired <laughs> these views are my own they are not of my employer <laughs> yeah right. yeah they though exactly <laughs> those are my views not that of my employer and windows 10 has been rolled out I just don't leave the thing long on long enough to actually update it or do oh, anything right. with it. Fair enough. Well, it'd be interesting to hear from um, from the audience as to whether they can use Linux all the time. It, it seems that, well, lo- looking at how many people use fucking iTunes to download <coughs> the podcast, I'd be surprised if anyone was free software only. But uh, I suppose that brings us into the admin section then. So, yeah, thank you, everyone who has been supporting us on paypal and patreon much appreciated and uh, if you want to join them latenightlinux.com slash support there's all sorts of options there and latenightlinux.com slash contact you'll find ways to get in touch with us and tell us 
about your experience of running Windows at work, probably, including the Telegram group. So latenightlinux.com slash Telegram, if you want to come and chat to us in real time. Usually quite good fun in there. And Foss Talk Live, the event that Ike isn't coming to, Boo. but the three of us are. It's on the 24th of June in the Harrison in King's Cross in London. All of these words, I don't know what they mean. I'm sure I'll find out soon enough. <laughs> well, you've got no Google Maps. How are you going to find it? <laughs> oh, I'm tempted to not even bring my phone. Dear God, going through the border is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> Especially if the Fuhrer wins again. That's but it. anyway... Um, so yeah, the thing is, this event is sold out. So why am I talking about it? I say sold out, it's free to come. All the tickets have been reserved. But not everyone who's got a ticket will necessarily turn up and not everyone will necessarily go to every live show because there's us, Ubuntu podcast, Linux voice, and then a drunken mashup, which is going to feature Stuart Langridge of Bad Voltage, me, Dave Megaslippers from Geek News Radio, and also, uh, I don't know what's, why does everyone laugh at that? It's just his name. <laughs> it's a brilliant name. I, I just hope he changes it by default to actually be <laughs> Mega Slippers. Uh, I've realized I've misspelled it on the website, but it will hopefully be fixed by the time anyone sees it. Um, and Marius Quarbeck, who uh, does UbuntuFun.de, he's German, but he speaks very good English. He's actually flying over. I think he's going to beat your record, failing for <sighs> the furthest distance traveled. Damn it. And certainly for most spent on the trip. Yeah, okay, he wins. Yeah. Um, so that last show, anyway, last year it was a fucking fiasco. I was way too drunk and was swearing at the audience and we didn't have a plan and it was just shit, basically. So we actually had a meeting at the weekend, very formal, and decided that what we're going to do is crowdsource the show, essentially, so if you go to fostalk.com slash questions, you'll see a Google form where you can ask us the questions. So by us, I don't mean late night Linux. I mean me, Stuart, um, Dave, and Marius. And you don't have to be coming to ask a question and you can do it anonymously if you want, but it's nice if you give your name, up to you. And if you despise Google, then you can email your questions to questions at fostalk.com, which is what you would do, failing probably. Yeah, I'll probably be asking why I'm not on it, because clearly it's not going to be any good. Yeah, probably. He says bottling. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, do get in touch with your questions, because if you don't have any questions, then I'll have to make something up on the spot and it'll be a fiasco again. So, uh, so if you want to see that... Yeah, don't then don't send us your questions. But no, it's basically any question you want. The, the fact is we're not going to answer all the questions. So if it's something ridiculous, then it's just going in the bin. But if it's something insightful or interesting or funny, then there's a good chance that we might read it out and answer it. So uh, yeah, fostalk.com is where you find all the uh, info on that anyway. We don't talk about Fedora very often, so we thought it would be a nice idea to invite Matthew Miller from the project onto the show. And Jesse and I spoke to him last week, I think it was. So let's hear that now. We're now joined by Matthew Miller, who is the Fedora project leader. So welcome, Matthew. Hi, nice to be with you. Ah, it's good to have you. So the reason that I asked you to come on the show is to tell us what is great about Fedora. Give us the kind of sales pitch, because we don't hear too much about Fedora generally. We hear a lot about Ubuntu. So I know it's difficult to sum it up 
um, in in one sentence. So I'll give you a bit more than that. But what what is great about Fedora? Why should people be using it? Yeah. So I well f- to start, I hope you do start hearing a lot more about Fedora in the future. We're trying to work a little bit on our marketing. We've always really had really good technical work and a really good community. And we're going to try and work on, you know, sort of selling ourselves a little bit more in the next you know, year or so. Um, so I hope you hear a lot more about Fedora and also, you know, some grassroots uh, things as more and more people discover what is so great. Um, so I think, uh, to, to answer the question, uh, there are two, two big things and there are that those technical things and the community. And on the technical side, we have a very nice, um, leading edge distribution where we try to follow the balance between being bleeding edge and being out of date. And I think that we walk that, um, I will humbly say better than anyone else does. Uh, we do a really good job of keeping things up to date while still every time a new release comes out, you can trust that you can install that release, you know, during right on the day one and it will be uh, in good quality. And that if it's not ready to go, we'll tell you so. And so you, you can, you can count on it being good quality and then up to date with a lot of polish uh, and a lot of engineering that goes into it from, um, you know, people who work directly on Fedora and work also in upstream. So we have, good relationships with GNOME and, you know, kernel and a bunch of the software that goes into making the distribution. And so a lot of that work is, you know, goes directly into Fedora very quickly. Um, and then the other thing is we are really a community project, something like 3000 people work on Fedora in some capacity every year. I mean, that might be as little as editing a wiki page or giving QA feedback on one update, or it might be a big, big contribution. And um, about 300 of those, about a tenth of people do about two thirds the work, which I think is a pretty good ratio for that split. Sometimes it's more like 1090. So we've got a nice, nice long tail. Um, and also of, of those 300, about 100 of them work for Red Hat and 200 work for other companies or universities or just, you know, doing stuff on their own. Um, so we have a pretty diverse community project and we have a leadership structure that reflects that. So, you know, anybody in the community can have direct influence on how Fedora goes, uh, which I think is um, also unique for a com- for a distribution which has a large corporate sponsor. That's a, that's a, that's a fantastic intro pitch. Um, you mentioned there sort of the, the tr- difficulty of being on the bleeding edge versus uh, being old. I see 26, uh, Fedora 26 Alpha is out. Um, what are the sort of the the new things that are coming with uh, Fedora 26 that you want to shout about? Uh, yeah, so we just act- entered our beta freeze for Fedora 26, which um, is going to the beta is going to be coming out at the end of the month, something like that, if everything goes well. Um, and I've actually been running the alpha and the pre-release. Actually, I updated to that before the alpha came out, and it's been very polished every throughout. So I'm taking a little bit to remember what's new and what's coming up because I'm already living on, you know, what should be the bleeding edge, but there's actually been no blood. It's been very nice so far. Um, so we have in Fedora Workstation, which is our primary desktop distribution. We have a new version of GNOME um, that has better Wayland integration. Um, it's made to I think there's some icon refinement. Um, I know there's a built-in um, nightlight thing, so it can you know, do the redshift thing at night to help you if you're up on your computer at night. So some of those kind of things are there for the workstation. I know on for Fedora Arm, the Raspberry Pi support is going to be much better. I think there's something like a two to three times speed improvement and I/O performance on the Pi. 
Um, so that that's kind of exciting. Um, overall, this is a release with just a whole bunch of changes um, to uh, across the board. I don't think there's anything that's really a gigantic flagship feature, but there's a lot of newer versions of everything that's going on out there in the open source world. So the desktop version workstation, who is that aimed at? Where does that sit in relation to other distros like Ubuntu on one end and Arch on the other? So. Yeah, so um, we... Our, our our main focus for that basically is software developers and technical users. Um, we think that you know it, it's great for anybody can run Linux on their desktop, and we think it's a good distribution that is basically easy to use for anyone. But um, we think it really is particularly good for people who are maybe um, working on you know, targeting enterprise Linux in you know for their production, and they want to run something that's some somewhat similar on their desktop. Um, they want to have a nice polished out of the box experience. Um, we try to make it a little bit um, so you can focus on your work rather than having to hack on the distribution. So something like Arch, um, Arch is awesome and is super fun, but it's a lot of like, I'm running Arch because I like to spend a lot of time running Arch. Um, and if you would like to mess around with Fedora in that way, we definitely invite you to be a Fedora contributor. But if you just want to be a Fedora user, you should be able to use it and have it get out of your way and not be any nonsense. Um, on the other hand, we do expect our audience to be fairly technical. We expect people who want to customize things to be able to install extensions. We expect that people will be using the terminal a lot. And so we've put, you know, some um, things, enhancements to make terminal use easier. Like we hooked up notifications. So if you have a long running job um, and you know, running in a terminal, you'll get a GNOME shell notification for it. Um, things like that. And we're going to be working on making more features that appeal to software developers in the future. So it sounds like it's not really recommended to, you know, put on someone's machine who's never used Linux before. So, yeah, I don't think that um, there'll be any problem for that person. Um, I think that if you haven't used Linux before, it's a it's a perfectly fine thing. We just have kind of put our focus on um, on the more technical audience um, just because we want to make sure that like that. That's what we think we can really succeed at. And we wanted to focus more on that. So there's been a few news stories that we've we've covered on Late Night Linux, and they've sort of centered around the way in which some of the the younger distributions or um, software groups that have come together have had trouble uh, with their management, with their structure, with the way that they're sort of you know, interacting with each other and with their fledgling communities and things. So can you just give a, a brief overview of the the hierarchy? I assume from you downwards, um, and, and how that works with with Fedora, and especially with your big community base. Yeah, so I think um, f- you know Fedora went through those struggles, you know, more than a decade ago. So I sympathize with everybody else, and it's taken us a while to get things right. And I think that if we'd started with the structure we have now, it might not have worked, but um, it it does work. Um, if you look at the hierarchy of uh, governance, it actually is pretty complicated. Um, I would kind of hesitate to say that I'm at the top of it because it really is a community-based thing with, you know, community decision-making and leadership. And so I kind of try to facilitate. I certainly am not a dictator of any sort. Um, but our top-level structure is the Fedora Council, which has... Um, six permanent members and then some adjunct members. Um, some of them are hired by Red Hat, uh, like me, and then we have Brian Exelbeard, who is the Fedora Community Action and Impact Coordinator, um, kind of is focused on building the community and supporting the community. Um, and then um, someone who represents sort of the engineering side of the project, someone else who represents sort of the mindshare and marketing side. 
and then um, a couple elected uh, sort of at large members as well. And one of the really unique things is that we use uh, consensus based decision making for everything. So uh, for a lot of decisions, it's basically lazy consensus. You say, I'm going to do this. This is in my area. Um, this is what I want to do. And then if nobody says anything within a couple days, it's taken as approved. Um, that kind of cuts down on the bureaucracy and the, you know, waiting to get things done. Yeah, this sounds like uh, a method I need to use at my work. That's, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Like, it's like, and also, you know, if somebody objects, they can't just say, now I hate it. It's got to be a valid justified objection or else it doesn't really count. Uh, for more formal things, we actually do a thing where we count the votes and you say, okay, we need to have, you know, a two week comment period and we need to have at least, you know, three plus ones in addition to not having any negatives. Um, but anybody can, anybody who is one of these full board members can, you know, block something if they've got a valid objection to it. So that includes, you know, um, you know, me as a Red Hat employee. Um, or, you know, someone who's elected from the community, um, basically have equal power in that decision making, which I think is very powerful. Um, although I should also point out that, um, uh, as a Red Hat employee, one of the awesome things Red Hat does is we have actually a, a rule that says if you're working in an upstream community and you need to make decisions about that community and there's something that would go against Red Hat in Red Hat's interests, but it's really for the best of that community, you can, you know, put the community first and it, you won't get fired for it. So I think that's an awesome thing about my employer. I should put in a plug there as well. Yeah. So it's an important safety net to have. Sure. Yeah. Um, but then, so that, that's kind of the top level structure. And then we also have, uh, basically a technical steering committee, the Fedora engineering steering committee, um, the Fedora ambassadors have their own committee. And a lot of those are, those actually run by more straightforward voting, but, um, each little group in Fedora kind of does, its own self-organizing about how they want to run things. Sort of the authority kind of flows down from the council, but it also flows up from everybody's decisions into into the council as well. So something that's been big news um, over the last, well, few months, and, and certainly has appeared um, in the last couple of weeks, is the Windows subsystem for Linux, which um, was originally just Ubuntu, but now um, is SUSE, I'm not sure which version, but also Fedora. So I wanted to ask you about that. What is involved? What was involved? Did Microsoft come to you and ask, or did they just do it? Presumably, they must have had to ask. Yeah, no, Microsoft came to us and asked and asked for some involvement in there. We have um, Seth Jenning is doing a lot of work on the actual technical side of making that happen and working with the Microsoft guys who are really great and really kind of enthused about it and enthused, very sincere about open source. So I was pretty impressed by that. Uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. I think it's nice to have Fedora there. I think um, it kind of helps expose people to open source who might not have otherwise. There are a whole large number of people who are running Windows, and they might be a little bit afraid to dip their toes into a whole Linux distribution, even though we try to make that as easy as possible. So I think this gives them more exposure. Um, I think it's also good for people who you know have to use Windows for their job or whatever, um, there are a lot of people who are, you know, they work at a big organization where Windows is mandated on the desktop, um, but then they're deploying to like Red Enterprise Linux somewhere. And so having Fedora available locally um, in some way or another um, is nice for them. So I think it's a cool thing. And what version of Fedora is it going to be then? So um, it's going to be 25 or 26 um, when it's actually in there. I'm not sure. It kind of depends on the timing of 26. 
Um, and we're going to try and keep it updated with the latest version as it goes. We had a bit of a question on our last show uh, that we couldn't answer, and I'm wondering, I hope you can give us an answer without uh, going going over the line with your employer. But um, why is it Fedora, and why wouldn't it have been... Um, is it CentOS, the other version? Yeah. Um, why, why isn't what, I guess? Or why isn't it in... On, on Windows, on the, uh, you know, Windows subsystem for Linux. Um, you know what? I actually don't know. I talk to the CentOS people sometimes, but um, I think it's possible to do possible to do with, you know, the version of things. Maybe they needed things to be newer. I'm not actually sure. Um, Microsoft came to us. Um, they said they'd been getting something like 40 to 50 requests a day for Fedora running on it. So That's fine. Just just take the ego boost. Yeah, right, I know. I was like, well, <laughs> it's, I guess it's what the people wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, presumably it's the server version rather than Atomic then. Yeah, so right. So this is Fedora. Um, it, it is going to be based, it's similar to Fedora Server, although Fedora Server has some stuff like Cockpit running, which is a um, interface for you know, web-based control of the system. I'm not sure that that will be there. It's going to be more of the, the Fedora everything thing in, in a minimal point of view. As I understand it, um, people have been getting X-based things to run. You run an X server on your Windows and forward to it and it works, um, although Microsoft doesn't currently support that. And I, I don't know, possibly that'll be the answer in the future. Possibly there'll be a Wayland backend for it or something. That would be uh, kind of interesting to see. And then also another way to get some of this open source software running on Windows, um, you know, get Darktable on Windows for the first time, I guess. Um, but yeah, basically it's mostly meant to be a command line environment for developers. Joe mentioned Atomic there. Uh, can you just sort of give the the pitch on Atomic? I, I know it's it's been told to me before, but it's all getting a bit getting <laughs> muddled in my head. Yeah, so Atomic is our uh, host platform, uh, or it's our project for running containers on Linux. And so um, we have Fedora Atomic Host, which is a small. It is not as tiny as it as it um, will ultimately be, but basically optimized for running container workloads. And we use a technology called OS Tree, which is basically Git for your system binaries. So you can, you have a sort of a commit stream that you can check out and update to the latest version of. If something goes wrong, you can go back to a previous one. And those updates are all done atomically. So um, you are never get in a state where you have a half done update. You do the update, then you reboot into the new one. It's kind of like a red green or, you know, AB deployment, except for instead of being locked to the two, you can actually go to any point backwards and forwards. You can even do the equivalent of get bisect to find if there's a bug. Um, and then on top of that, we have, you know, OCI Docker containers basically to run your workloads. One of the interesting things we're doing there too is, uh, we are actually creating OCI Docker containers, um, as part of a build service in our infrastructure. So, uh, the distribution is primarily composed of RPMs. And so we have a system where you can make a Docker file and uh, as a Fedora contributor, basically have um, container images using RPMs in Fedora generated automatically. And then those get rebuilt automatically as those RPMs change. So it's pretty easy for us to build and distribute, say, like a LAMP stack in a container to uh, run on Atomic. Oh, nice. Very nice. So another big thing over the last year or so has been the new packaging formats, Flatpak and Snaps, etc. Um, to what extent does Fedora support those then? So 
This actually ties into the atomic thing pretty well, really, because we're looking at trying to figure out how to deliver a containerized desktop in in a sort of similar way that you know, atomic gives us a server server solution. So we've, uh, we're looking at doing sort of a Fedora atomic workstation. And in order to do that, you've got this OS tree based base system, and then your applications have to come from somewhere. So Flatpak lets us have a nice separation between the base operating system and applications. So your applications can be updated. They can you know, come from different sources without being confusing. Uh, right now, if you try to mix together a lot of RPM sources, you can kind of back yourself into a corner pretty easily. But uh, different flat packs can coexist. You can have different versions of things. Uh, so uh, a lot of the people who you know work on GNOME and work on Flatpak also work on Fedora. So there's kind of a natural synergy there. And uh, the Fedora workstation people are pretty excited about it. I think we'll see some more kind of around the Fedora 27, 28 time frame this fall and um, or, you know, the spring if you're in Australia. Uh, or uh, a year from now in the, in the Fedora 28 release, but I think it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, I know there's also snappy support in Fedora. Some uh, our contributors have worked on that. It, it, um, it doesn't have a uh, SE Linux support right now, so the security sandboxing is a little dodgy. I think that's being worked on. Um, another big concern with, uh, with Flatpak, you can basically choose a runtime, so you can have you know, a Fedora-based runtime or an OpenSUSE-based runtime or whatever. Uh, with Snappy as it exists, basically the runtime for all snaps is Ubuntu. And um, candidly, that is not so interesting to us as a distro-neutral mechanism. It more feels like a um, Ubuntu at the center of everything mechanism. So, But um, isn't that supposed to be the point of it? That at the, Okay, it started out as Ubuntu only or you know based on ubuntu but they're trying to make it a bit more distro agnostic yeah um so they're trying to make it so it runs on any distro i know that they they said they are open to making it so it could use any runtime but as far as i know there hasn't been any work on that so um it certainly becomes a lot more interesting to me um once we can build something that is you know built you know pure fedora with we, we can provide fedora based snaps that might be something to look at um but i think a kind of taking a wait and see attitude until that kind of stuff develops. Yeah, fair enough. So I see at the moment um, the Fedora 26 Alpha is around. When are we going to see the actual release of that then? Yeah, so the beta is scheduled for um, May 30th. So knock on wood, that should come out um, on time with no trouble. And I think it's looking pretty smooth right now. And then the final release is currently scheduled for June 27th. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if it slips a little bit into July, because again, we try to make sure that everything is polished when we send it out the door. Yeah, you don't go for hard release dates, do you? You kind of uh, make sure it's ready. Yeah, we try to uh, have this hybrid approach between, you know, having, we want to make sure we get out a release roughly every six months, but we want to make sure that's ready every time. Um, that sometimes has been a little bit confusing for people because they're like, Fedora is slipping again, but it really is an emphasis on making sure that, you know, users get the quality that they expect from Fedora every time. And uh, and currently Fedora, I mean, we're not using it as a, a very hard gauge, but Fedora is number seven on DistroWatch. Uh, given that you're saying about having uh, better sort of community um, discussions and involvement and, you know, spreading the word and what have you, what's your prediction for the end of the year position? 
<laughs> oh, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't take the DistroWatch numbers very seriously at all. I think they more more to do with search engine optimization. Um, I think some distros have had you know like DistroWatch on the homepage for their distro that comes up, um, things like that that kind of skew the results. Even DistroWatch says not to take those numbers seriously. So um, that's yeah. not one of the things I really use as a metric. So number one, then. Yeah, yeah n- three, number yeah. one, that's, uh, uh, you know, n- number one or number 30. Seriously, I really don't care. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, well, so it's uh, getfedora.org is yeah. the website. Um, okay, well, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And thanks for coming on and hopefully speak to you again at some point. Yeah, thanks. Great to talk to you guys. Well, you're awful nice to him. Well, it's one thing to have someone ask to come on the show and then you can get the bats out and beat them like we did with Yoss. But if you invite someone on, you've got to be polite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet, bet Yas is wishing he was, uh, he was in this position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that I, we never talk about Fedora, and I am genuinely interested in it. Why is it that we don't use it? And Matthew made some pretty good arguments for using it, as far as I can see. Yeah, it was good to hear. And I think it'd be, be good to get back at them a bit later on, see how they've been getting on. Because, yeah, I mean, it's I don't know whether it's something to do with being in Europe well, I, I just never even think of it, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to um, invite him or maybe someone else back on and, and see. He talked about engaging more with the community, so hopefully we'll hear a bit more from them at some point very soon. So I suppose we'd better wrap it up then. Ike needs to get to the shop before they close so he can buy some bread and um, energy drinks, probably. <laughs> and Jesse needs to get on his plane to New York. Love chop. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Well, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Uh, in the meantime, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I'm still Ike. Well, I've been Jesse. See you later. Slam. Yeah. <laughs>